The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Acts 27. We left off our story a couple of weeks ago in chapter 25 and 26 with Paul being held in prison and him making an appeal to Rome. It was the right of every Roman citizen to begin to make his way to the highest court of the land if he felt that he was being given an unfair process or given unfair justice in a lower court. A Roman citizen could appeal to the court of Caesar at any point to be heard by the emperor himself. So Paul makes this appeal, which means then that they have to make arrangements to ship him from Israel, from Caesarea Maritima, all the way to Rome to appear before Caesar. Now, the last verse of chapter 26 tells us that... Uh, the last two verses, excuse me, that Agrippa and Festus were conversing with one another. And they said, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. So they knew that there was really nothing to charge Paul with, but because they were trying to play political sides and, and they were caught in the tension of of, of trying to please the people and also not upset the justice system. They were between a rock and a hard place. Paul saw right through this and he said, hey, I'm not going to get a fair shake here. So send me to Rome. Cause me to stand before Caesar. So chapters 27 verse 1 picks up and it says this, and when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, notice the we there, that is Luke, the author of the gospel of Luke and of the book of Acts, he says that we should sail for Italy. They delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Adramidium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. Now, Aristarchus gets a mention here. He was probably Luke's friend because Luke also was from Macedonia. And Aristarchus, it's, it's po- probable that Aristarchus ha- is one of the people who brought support to Paul while he was in prison. So those churches that were planted by Paul were also bringing support and hand-delivering support to Paul while he was in prison. So that tells you the caliber of friendships that Paul developed, the people that he was around, and the depth of their love for him. Now Luke and Aristarchus, are they get in the boat with Paul and a bunch of other prisoners, and they're about to make a 1,600-mile trip to Rome so that they can be with their friend. Now, as the story takes off here, we're going to see some things unfold. There is a, a mighty storm. Uh, there's a lot of suffering that's involved in the course of that storm. But uh, we're going to see how differing groups respond to the adversity that is in their presence. The adversity that they are going through corporately or together. 
Now, in the current temperament of the world around us, uh, the world is, is very much afraid. And fear does strange things to the hearts of people. It narrows the focus onto what is the loudest thing imaginable. Oh! Oh! Did you notice that? Did you notice how all of a sudden your hearing got much better? Did you notice that just now your eyes sharpened and you became focused? Like, what was that? Danger. What happened? You see how that happened? That is an automatic response that happens in our hearts when we are under distress, when fear is present. Notice how your attention narrowed and your eyes began to focus looking for information to see and analyze the threat to safety. Now this same principle, what you just did as an automatic response to me banging my knee into the pulpit on purpose. (laughs) What just happened there is the same mechanism that is happening every time you turn on the news or you take a look at social media. As a matter of fact, this same principle is what is getting hijacked by the 24-hour news cycle. It's the same tactic that is used by advertising companies in order to get you to pay attention to their advertisements over someone else's advertisements. Now, according to the New York Times and and an online uh, corporation called Axios, Social media usage and traffic on major news outlets has increased significantly during the pandemic and during the, the protests and riots that have erupted in recent days. You see, fear is good for the advertising business. The way that social media sites and the way that news organizations make their money is not by just simply freely offering information to you, but by getting your attention so they can harvest information from you and so they can sell advertisements. So social media organizations uh, and, and websites, they keep track of your web history, your searches, your, your usage times, like what time you get off work and check your phone or what your break times are. They're keeping track of all that so that they know when is the best time to give you that perfect advertisement. Because lately on Google, you've been looking at mountain bikes or backpacking gear or whatever, right? And so they are hijacking those responses in you to try and keep track. Now, the more that fear keeps you tuned into social media and keeps you tuned in to the news cycle, the more of your attention they have. And the greater the likelihood that they will be able to sell you something. Now, the downstream effect is that the more that things look bad the more that people focus in. And the more people focus in, the more advertising is effective. And so it is in the interest of news organizations and it is in the interest of social media websites to keep things stirred up. To keep what is fearful in front of you. 
there's an automatic interest on their part to grab more and more of your attention. And as a result, fear increases. It continues to just grow and grow in the background because every day that you tune into the news and every day that you turn into social media, you're like, first it was the pandemic, then it was the murder hornets, locusts in Africa, and now the riots, and what is next? Aaron actually sent out a great uh, meme. It was a train that's load was on fire and it was coming down the tracks towards the camera and, and the meme just read at the bottom and said, oh look, here comes July. <laughs> Can you feel that? Do you empathize with that? As we've been watching the news unfold in the world. You see, the world is uniquely focused right now. Uniquely And that is what tragedy, that is what hardship, that is what trials do. So today we will see not only Paul, but his friends, Luke and Aristarchus, and a list of other people enter a trial that is going to really test their resiliency. We'll get to see them wrestle with fear, with powerlessness, with hopelessness. But I want you to keep an eye on Paul. And how it is that he navigates this issue differently from the others in the ship. Paul has a confidence in God that that keeps him when the rest of the ship is freaking out. Because of what he knows about God and because Paul is a witness to those around him, Paul senses that God is going to use him. So, our outline for our first part here will be verses 1 through 12, frustration in adversity. For those of you who are note takers, frustration in adversity. Paul and his buddies take off and they leave from Caesarea Maritima. They head up to uh, Sidon and this is the area that Jesus Uh, visited, and from there they catch a ship that is headed around the coastline. For those of you who might have a Bible map in the back of your Bibles and you want to take a look there, you'll see that they are skirting from Israel up the coastline. I guess it would be in reverse. Up up the coastline. uh, And they are trying to stay close to the shore because right now is the edge of winter. And the seas get kind of rough. So you don't want to be way out in the sea, but you don't want to be too close to the shore where you're caught in the surf. You just kind of want to hang close to the shoreline. And they begin to travel like this. The next day, verse 3, we put in at Sidon. And Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. So the lee of an island is is whenever there is a landmass or, um, you know, an island that's there and the winds are kind of coming at it, you can find relief from the wind in the downward, the leeward side of the island. And so they're 
strategically traveling in the lee out of the winds in the protection of that landmass. And verse 5, and we and when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra and Lycia. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. So here they change ships and they begin to find a way to make their, their way to Rome. We sailed slowly for a number, a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Snidus. And as... The wind did not allow us to go farther. We sailed under the lee of Crete off of uh, Salmon. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, which was the city of Lycia. Now, these are all places, and it might not make a whole lot of sense, but here was the ideal situation. They would get in the second boat, and they would sail in between the major landmass above and the island of Crete and stay to the north. But the winds were contrary to them, so they got blown off course, and they had to come to the southern part of the island. And they landed in a place called Fair Havens. Now, apparently, Fair Havens was the cave junction of Crete. It was... It was not a place that people necessarily wanted to hang out for the winter. It was, it was not necessarily inviting. And so though they had made it there, and they had made it there safely, although with great difficulty, they did not want to stay there. Since much time had passed, and the voyage was now dangerous, because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them. So... The fast being spoken of here is the Day of Atonement. So he says we're we're past the full festival of the Day of Atonement. The fast has already been accomplished, and now we're heading into the depth of winter. It's been a long, hard journey already. And so Paul then advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. So here the centurion listens to the professionals. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter, uh, to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, which is a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest and spend the winter there. Okay, so they're in the cave junction of Crete and they decide, hey, this is not the best place for us to hang out. Let's make our way to this other city, this other port called Phoenix. Now, on the island of Crete, it's, it's this land mass and it's got kind of an, uh, a peninsula, peninsula that comes down. Now, on one side is Fair Havens, and on the other side is Phoenix. All they have to do is kind of hug the land and bump around that peninsula, and then they can come in to this new port, which is a little bit more favorable of a place to winter. And that is their plan. So the weather kind of calms down, and they think to themselves, uh, let's, let's go for it. Let's, let's head out. Now, when the south wind blew gently, 
Supposing that they had obtained purpose, they weighed anchored and sailed along Crete close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called a northeaster struck down from the land. This was a heavy storm, typical of a typhoon. And uh, it was a, a heavy, heavy wind that was coming against them. And it, instead of being able to round the point and come into that port, they get blown out to sea again. And now they are in the middle of the Mediterranean, subject to all of the elements. Now, I want to I pause here for just a moment just to make a couple of points. First of all, I want you to see the frustration in adversity in verses 1 through 12. They take off from Sidon and they begin making their way. But all along the way, the wind is dogging them. And it builds this sort of frustration because they, they keep getting blown from the course that they wanted to travel and are subject to the wind and the seas and, and, and being blown to every place they don't want to be. And resistance builds frustration. And that frustration builds brashness. They make it finally to Fair Havens and they say, we don't want to end up in this podunk town. If we're going to have to stay the winter, let's go to Phoenix. It's a better harbor. It's got more favorable winds. It'll be a better place to winter. It's a good spot for us to land. Paul's like, I don't think this is a good idea. Now, Paul is a seasoned traveler, right? He knows what he's talking about. But the sailors are seasoned too. These are sailors from Alexandria. And uh, these guys, they, they know what they're talking about. And so the, the centurion listens to these sailors and says, I, I think we can make it. And when the seas kind of calm down and the wind breaks, they think, okay, this is our chance. We'll, we'll round the horn there and make our way. But once again, in their brash decision... They get puffed up with pride and think, no, we, we can handle this. We can do this. We can, we can take this boat across the sea here. And once again, as soon as they make it out from the cover of that peninsula that comes down, the wind grabs a hold of their ship and blows them off course out to sea. Pride, their arrogance and thinking, and we know best, we're in control, and because they've been dogged along the way, that frustration that had been building inside of them caused them to make a rash decision in the moment. And instead of listening to the counsel of Paul, they decided to forge ahead, and now they are in great peril. Resistance builds frustration, frustration builds brashness, brashness reinforces pride, and pride fails to hear wisdom. If I could pause for just a moment, I'd, I'd like to offer a little bit of social commentary. This is what I see and what I hear in the world around us right now. The conflict over Black Lives Matter is heated. It is a it is a terrible thing to get online and see brothers and sisters in Christ battering one another the way that I've seen it in the past few weeks. Both sides of the argument, in my opinion, 
are oversimplifying incredibly complex issues without really understanding the nuances of it all. And in the frustration that comes with change, change is a very slow process. The world is responding with brashness and with pride. Because as a culture, we've failed to truly look at the nuances of the issues or to truly hear one another. The issues get very confusing and and in sound bites and in meme fashion and in 120 characters or less, you have keyboard warriors on both sides making 120 character comments either direction, firing past each other. These are complex issues. Let me just... Let me just lay out a few pieces of information that that can demonstrate the complexity of these issues. For instance, if you are a black person who has grown up in some of the poorer neighborhoods surrounding big cities, you experience life, your reality looks differently than it does for us here in southern Oregon. That's just the truth of the matter. And often when police have interactions with people in poor and ethnic communities, what is presented, what you see from the time that you are a child, from the time that you are little, what you see are predominantly white police officers interacting with people of color. And it doesn't always look pretty. This begins to cause you to think about the world around you and and to come to conclusions about authorities. It leaves an indelible mark on your mind that, that people with power are people with less skin pigment. And it also reinforces that people of color are somehow under siege. And and you can't help that perception. Because that is what you grow up with. Now, if you look at this from another angle, from the angle of a police officer, they are called upon to do one of the most difficult jobs in America. The overwhelming majority of police officers are amazing and honorable humans who on a daily basis put their lives in danger for the sake of fellow citizens. They are on a daily basis required to to interact with the very worst in society. They are eyewitnesses to all kinds of horrors that we cannot possibly imagine. They have a steady diet of being lied to, of seeing homes torn apart by violence and drugs and fearing for their own lives every time they make a traffic stop. Now they also have to worry about being prosecuted, not necessarily for their own mistakes, but for the mistakes that their partners make. It's a complex issue for them. Instead of feeling supported by their communities, the communities that they protect with their lives... And with their honor, they are castigated and mistreated and blamed. And graffiti everywhere marks 
the public disdain for their honorable service. Two different human experiences. And, and, and that's not the only thing that shapes perception. What about looking at history? History can be seen from two different angles. From one angle, you see the progression of America from a mere colony to the country that it is today. And you see triumph over much adversity and the heroism of previous generations of people who stood for principles like liberty and justice for all. And yet from another angle, you see the history of an Anglo-centric telling of history. Most Americans know the history of the white world, but have little understanding of the history from other cultures. Not just the oppression of slavery, but even a basic knowledge of African history or Polynesian or Asian. See, history is often written from a perspective. A perspective that is not all-encompassing all of the time. And this leads people from minority groups wondering at the absence of historical heroes that were people of color. From one angle, the Civil War looks like a triumphant victory over slavery and over oppression. We look at the 360,222 lives from the North, white lives that were shed which died and shed blood for the sake of and for the cause of freeing those who were enslaved. It was a battle for freedom. But from another angle, you could also say that half the country didn't approve. From one angle, Christians everywhere want to affirm that black lives do indeed matter too. And from another angle, we cannot affirm all the things that Black Lives Matter, the organization, affirm. Many of them are anti-Christian. And so, history and issues seen from two different angles look two different ways. And then there's the oversimplified solutions that begin being touted. But man, these are complex issues. You think about minority communities that surround big cities. How did those come into being? Well, we know historically they happened in in several different ways. One of them was this practice called redlining where you didn't offer money to people who lived in communities of color. In addition to that, back when World War I and II were happening, the industrial complex kicked off and, and housing was being built near factories on the coastlines to house workers in these factories as they produced all the war machines and the things necessary to fight World War I and World War II. But segregation was still in place, and after that time, when the factories began to wind down, the suburbs gave rise And suburbs were kept white. And the apartment complexes, the projects that were in these inner city areas, became ethnic communities exclusively. That was a direct result 
of segregation. And the effects are still lasting to this very day. We happen to live in an area right here in southern Oregon where the police department is an excellent one. I was talking with Mary Melgren here, and she was talking about the, the, the training that goes on in our police department. It's incredible. They, they are required to take training regularly, consistently, but that is not the same all the way around the country. Some police departments are so huge and so vast, you may not even know from one department to the next how qualified the training really is. Not only that, but if you think the solution is defunding them, the training will not improve. It will not get better. Fatherlessness and childhood trauma are consistent experiences in minority communities and are statistically linked to higher rates of crime, to prison sentences, to drug use, to other forms of moral decay. But fatherlessness among minority communities has been incentivized by government funding. High-density minority communities with high rates of poverty exist today as a direct result of all of these factors in history. You see, these issues are complex. You don't unwind that with a protest. You don't unwind that with, with simple passing tweets back and forth on social media. Real, sophisticated strategy has to be applied in a multiplicity of areas to begin approaching some of these issues. And the oversimplification keeps us fighting and divided with one another. In the frustration of these complex issues, many Americans of every ethnicity want to see it solved. And the frustration reaches this boiling point. The pattern from this is cyclical. It comes up every election year. We know that, right? That's what happens. People want change. They think the next king or the next person in power is going to make that happen. That's their hope. And keyboard warriors everywhere think that the louder that they shout or, or the, the more that they take to the streets, the faster the problems will get solved. And pride wells up in both sides. Because of the growing frustration of the slowness of change, it feels like you are sailing against the wind. So what do we do as Christians? What do we do? Listen, as Christians, we have to affirm on this issue that every person, regardless of race, is made in the image of God and worthy of dignity and worthy of inalienable rights. That goes without saying Christians must also affirm that the plan of God is to redeem the world and to create lasting justice. We know that that's God's plan, that he desires to bring everybody under one umbrella of his rule and reign. And that we as his people will not always be experiencing the contrariness of the winds against us. Christians must also affirm that we are called in the present moment to create justice now through our labor in a way that reflects the rule and reign of God 
in the coming kingdom. Didn't Jesus teach us to pray? Didn't he teach us to pray? Let, let your kingdom come now in the same way that it is in heaven. Let, it, let, it, let your will be done right now, right here, in the same way that it will be done ultimately in the coming kingdom. When people take their swords and their spears and they, they beat them down into farming implements. Christians must also affirm that God delights in the differences of color. I mean, you think about that. Does God make one kind of flower, all the same color? One kind of bug, all the same bug? One kind of human, all the same human? No. God obviously delights in diversity. He loves it. As a matter of fact, it's one of the things that he preserves in the new heavens and the new earth. That for all of eternity, brown brothers and white brothers and people from every ethnicity in the world will stand before the throne of God and give praises to his name. And with one voice and with one heart, everyone in unison will see the glory of who God is. And he is going to delight in that moment. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation. Christians... We must also not, fail, not fall into the trap of going with the flow of culture and demonizing good men and women on both sides of this issue. Good men and women who are people with ethnic backgrounds and good pe- men and women who are police officers. We can't fall into the trap of demonizing either side. They're humans created in the image of God. So I just want to, I just want to pause for just a moment. I want you to think about this boat, right? Inside are a few believers. Along with those few believers are a whole bunch of other people who have no point of reference in God. And the boat is being blown off course, and everybody in the boat is freaking out. What an opportune time for God to use His people. What an opportune time for God to speak his will and his desires through his servants on this boat. You see, adversity is frustrating, but I want you to see there's a a secondary thing that happens, and that it is adversity is humbling. There's a humbling in adversity. In verses 13 through 20, it says this, Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. But as soon as the tempestuous wind, called the Northeaster, struck down from the land, and when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along, running under the lee of a small island called Cauda. We managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. Say that a little attendant boat that was a part of it. So they secured that. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then fearing that they would run along on the Sirtis, which was a sandbar in northern Africa, they lowered the gear and thus were driven along. And since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard 
with their own hands. Now, just think about this for a moment. They're, they're trying to keep the ship light. They don't want to run into a sandbar. They, they're not exactly sure where they are. They cannot see the sun, and they do not see the stars, so navigation is very difficult in the sea at this time. There's no GPS. So the, the strategy, the thinking is, okay, let's lighten the ship so that it, it doesn't sink as deeply into the water. They get rid of the, the, the cargo that they brought with them, and then they think it's still not light enough. We're still, we're, we're still under the water quite a bit, so let's get rid of the tackle too. So they, they start to throw all the tackle necessary for sailing overboard as well. In verse 20, when neither the sun nor the stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay on us all, hope of our being saved was last abandoned. Here you can see the ship gives up hope. We're like, we're, we're probably not going to make it. <laughs> they, they realize we are in a bad, bad situation. And since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, men, you should have listened to me. Here's the I told you so. And not to have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Now, I want you to see, before we, we move on here, I want you to see the humbling that takes place. First of all, adversity reveals our lack of control. When hard times come, when difficulty arises, when adversity comes... The first thing that goes out the window is the idea that we actually have control over anything. And the wind was pushing them off course. They thought, well, we're going to get to this place. Are you? Really? Are you sure about that? Are you really in control of that? Adversity reveals our lack of control. Second thing adversity reveals, adversity reveals our fragility. You see, one thing could change the outcome of their lives immediately. Not having the right tackle, not having enough food, hitting a sandbar in the middle of the ocean, having the ship come apart. There are a bazillion different things that could go wrong, and they are sunk, literally. It reveals how fragile their lives really are. And, and guys, isn't that what happens with us too? We think that we're in control. We think, man, we, we've got life nailed down and, and it's just going to kind of continue like this forever. And then one thing happens, one little piece moves and all of a sudden we realize how fragile our lives really are. I've got plans for retirement. One visit to the doctor could change that. I, I can't wait to see my kids graduate high school. I've got plans about the future and I want to travel with my wife. And it's all subject to change. We just don't know, right? Life is fragile, so much more fragile than we could possibly understand. There's small things like little tiny microscopic organisms that can change the face of an entire planet. Or big things like earthquakes and fires and everything else. Adversity reveals that we are so, so very fragile. Adversity also reveals our mortality. Life feels pretty permanent 
until we realize how easy it is to, to perish. So it reveals our lack of control, it reveals our fragility, and it reveals our mortality. This life better not be all that there is. Right? Because it can go away at any minute, at any moment. But after verse 20, and beginning in verses 21 and going through verse 26, we will see God's comfort in adversity. God's comfort in adversity. So we'll pick it up in verse 21. So they've been without food for a long time. Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me, not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you, take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. Now, Paul has changed his tune here, right? He's like, well, we're all going to die first. That's what he says. Now he says, guess what? Nobody's going to die. He <laughs> said, what, what changed Paul's perspective? Well, he tells us, for this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart. For I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. So God tells Paul what's about to happen. Now, there's a few things that are comforting to Paul in the middle of this. First of all, God sees. He hasn't seen the sun. He hasn't seen the stars. They've gotten rid of their cargo and their tackle. They've preserved just a little bit of food for themselves. But they are subject to the winds. And everybody, including Paul, is wondering, are we going to make this? Are we going to survive this? The sailors have given up hope. Then God comes along to Paul, sends an angel to him and says, Hey, Paul, I see Here's the comfort. Three things. God sees, God cares, and God has a plan. Okay? First thing, the angel comes and says, Paul, I see what's going on. (laughs) All right? I care about it. And I just want you to know, I'm going to get you where I said I was going to get you. I've got a plan. You're going to run a aground on some island. You're going to end up there. I've got a little bit of work for you to do in that place. And, and man, you are going to make it. God sees. God cares. God has a plan. They are not lost at sea in the hands of God. So Paul seeks to comfort his fellow passengers with this prophetic word given by an angel to him. Now, it's one thing for us to know these things in the adversity that we face in life, but it's another thing for us to trust in them, isn't it? I think one of the most often quoted verses in times of adversity is, for I know the plans that I have for you, right? Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. often quoted. And it's true, but we also know from the Bible that sometimes those plans are very painful, aren't they? Sometimes they require a great deal of suffering. And so I think oftentimes we are struggling with, okay, I know God has a plan, but is his plan good? Or is there 
less pain involved than what I would like it to be. And that's a, that's a very human experience. But in this case, Paul has a specific word that this is going to be a, an instance where God preserves, where God saves. Not just him, but everybody in the boat with him. So, from verses 27 to 44, we will see faith in adversity. Faith in adversity. Paul's life begins to have an effect on the other passengers in the ship. And because of his demeanor and because of his faith, Paul began to infect the others on the ship with the faith that he had. So, let's pick it up. Verse 27. When the 14th night had come, as they were being driven across the Adriatic Sea about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found it to be 20 fathoms, which is about 120 feet. A little further on, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms, which is 90 feet. And fearing that we might run onto the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. So first of all, notice the sailors now start to pray. (laughs) They're like, God of Paul, hope you're right. (laughs) We would like to see this too. They begin to pray for, for day to come. Verse 30, and as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow. Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be safe. And then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. So the little attending boat that they had, they were beginning to lower it down. The sailors were like, oh, we're going to go bring some anchors off the bow. But really they were like, we're out of here. <laughs> we don't want any part of this. And, and Paul sees what's going on. He sees what's happening. And he, he speaks to him. He's like, hey, we're going to need those sailors. We're going to need them on the boat to help us get to where we can shipwreck and survive. So unless they're on here, we're all kind of sunk. So notice then that the soldiers start to listen in verse 32. They go, okay, yeah, let's cut away the boat. You're right, we're going to need them. Now, they didn't listen to Paul earlier in the chapter when he said we shouldn't go out to sea. But now all of a sudden, as he begins to speak with confidence, God is going to save us. There's good ahead. There's things that are happening. We're working towards God's will and not away from God's will. They start to pick up on that. They go, okay, let's let's listen to Paul here. He's got something to say. He's got a voice here that really matters. I appreciate his encouragement. I appreciate his input. And the soldiers start to listen. Then, verse 33, as the day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food. Hey, today is the 14th day that you've continued in suspense without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength. For not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of all and broke it and began to eat. And then they were all encouraged and ate some food for themselves. So Paul here, again, attributing everything to God. He takes bread, he lifts it up in front of him, and and he he blesses and says, God, thank you for your provision, right? He, He breaks it apart and begins to pass it out. 
And the people receive that encouragement, that nourishment. And the passengers start to eat. The sailors start to pray. The soldiers start to listen. The passengers start to eat in verse 36. We're told in verse 37, we were in all 276 persons in the ship. Now some of the uh, different fragments of the book of Acts say that it was 76, some say 276, and so scholars debate that back and forth. But here's the point, there was a lot of people on the boat. And not all of them were believers in Jesus. But they were all beginning to be comforted by the presence of the Christians, the followers of Jesus who were on that boat. Verse 38, when they'd all eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on it, in which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea. So here is a big risk. When they cut away the anchors, again, they're trying to keep the boat as light as possible, getting rid of weight. Now they get rid of their anchors. This is absolute total commitment to being able to make it to their destiny. So they cast off anchors, left them in the sea, and at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground, and the bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. There was a cross current there, and the surf was fierce, and it began to break up the ship. Now, the soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. Because remember, for a Roman soldier, if a prisoner escapes, your life for their life. So their thought is like, let's kill them so that we are okay. <laughs> right? Because what if one of them swims away? What if one of them escapes? But the centurion, wishing to save Paul kept them from carrying out their plan and he ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for land and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship and so it was that they were all brought safely to land the sailors start to pray the soldiers start to listen in verse 32 the passengers start to eat in verse 36 and the centurion starts to care about Paul in verse 43 you see, they were all going through this adversity together, but not everyone was experiencing the trial the same way. Some had lost hope along the way, but Paul was there to encourage them. Some were seeking to escape, but Paul was there to keep them on board. Some had no concept of how God could be in control or care for them through this adversity, but Paul was there to remind them that God did indeed care and God did indeed see. Some had fear over the future, but Paul was there to tell them that God was still working in the presence of the difficulty. Paul's presence in the adversity was literally a saving grace to everybody on board. And Paul did not waste his influence. He leveraged it. He leveraged it. Guys, listen, right now the world seems upside down. There are plagues and pandemics, and just almost out of a biblical text itself, nation is rising up against nation, ethnos or ethnicity against ethnicity. 
There are locusts that are swarming in Africa. I mean, the, the news right now reads like the book of Revelation, doesn't it? Now, it's not the first time that these types of things have happened. The truth is, from the time of the ascension forward, we've been living in the last days. That's the reality. We don't know when Jesus is coming back. But the whole earth is afraid, and fear has focused all their attention. Like when I hit my knee on the pulpit, people are like, what is going on in the world? What is happening? People are wondering. Christians, brothers, sisters, don't lose this chance. Don't waste your influence on Facebook wars and Twitter comments. Speak life into the world. There are others who are in this boat with us right now. And they don't know the hope that we have. Now is the time to say something that the world is not hearing. You know what they're not hearing? They're not hearing that their desires are fulfilled in the gospel. They're not hearing that because of what Jesus did on the cross, racial tension will not ultimately survive in this world. God is going to heal it. They're not hearing that pandemics will no longer rule the world. That every tear will be wiped away. They're not hearing that locusts will not destroy the earth. Or murder hornets. Or whatever else they come up with. Matter of fact, God has told us that all of the things that we're seeing will happen. He's told us that we have a hope. He's told us that he has a plan. And that everything that the world longs for is to be found in the kingdom. Everything that the world wants to see happen is actually the exact plan of God. Everything that the world is begging for is found in the good news of God's plan of redemption. The world that he is redeeming, the world he is creating, is a world where every tribe, tongue, and nation will be gathered at the throne, where injustice will not have a place on the earth, where sickness will be gone, where death will be no more. Now is the time for Christians to flip the narrative and to tell the world that they are right to want justice. They are right to want a world that is free of disease. They are right to long for peace. They are right to hate death and disease. Tell them that their, in, their desires have an intended purpose. And tell them that what Jesus began to do at the cross will ultimately be completed at his return. That all of their desires are spot on. And tell them that we're in the ship with them. Amen? Father, as we come to your word, I recognize that these things are hard to talk about. People have such passionate dialogue on all sides of these issues, but ultimately we realize, Lord, that because of the gospel, 
we know where the world is headed. And it's not headed ultimately towards destruction, but absolute rebirth. Thank you, God, that when the world is falling apart, we don't have to because we know that our hope is secure. And God, when everybody else around us is peddling fear, help us to extend a hand of faith. May our confidence in who you are, may our love for our neighbor, be a voice, God, that actually matters in the world. Instead of throwing our voices in with the world around us and and trying to play to identity politics, God, may we find our true identity in you and proclaim the kingdom all the louder that the rest of the world might find the hope that we have trusted in. So God, use us. Perhaps you have raised us up for such a time as this. May we represent your heart. May we bring glory to you in the way that we live and act.